0: You're about to join Niels Kostrup-Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent
1: yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic
0: Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Richard Brennan and I. Niels Castellarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're newer to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed. Like my conversation with Alan last week, where we not only touched on some of the market instability issues we are seeing in the last few weeks, but we also debated the pros and the cons of replication strategies from the eye of an allocator, like Alan used to be. And then we had a few really good uh, articles that we also dug into. And I also really want to encourage you to listen to the midweek episode uh, that we published only a few days ago, where Kevin Caldine spoke to perhaps the most, um, or I would say the world's leading financial historian, Edward Chancellor, who is an author, he's a journalist, but he's also worked with some of the best hedge fund managers out there. And they discussed Edward's latest book, The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest. And this really is a must-listen to conversation. So head over, check them out as soon as you're done listening to me and Rich today. Rich, it is wonderful to see you uh, again. How are you doing? How are things down under? All oh, good, Neil. It's always great
1: pleasure to be on here. But um, yeah, it's... It... It's a bit drier than uh, we're used to at the moment and slowly we're getting a bit of warmth in the air coming back from our Australian winter. So uh, we're in reverse to you over there, but uh, now we're slowly taking off our clothes as opposed to you putting on your clothes.
0: <laughs> well, not not just uh, yet, I would say. Uh, Europe is still haunted by some very high temperatures, I have to say, and uh, and that doesn't look like it's stopping any anytime soon. But anyways, we certainly look forward to the next season when it comes, even though the winter might be a little bit more, uh, how should I say, uh, worrisome given what's going on in the energy markets. Now, as a quick uh, market wrap, um, if we look back at last week's, or last Friday's strong employment report, that suggested to worried investors that straight, two straight Quarters of economic contraction wouldn't result necessarily in a hard landing. And this week's CPI offered hope that the inflation momentum has passed. And with that, investors can perhaps relax and enjoy the last few weeks of the summer, although I would stress the word perhaps. The 0% month-on-month change in inflation was a welcome bit of news uh, from what we've seen for nearly two years now. But maybe we should be hesitant to declare victory in the Fed's war on inflation, there's still an enormous amount of excess liquidity in the system, and the Fed's quantitative tightening has been slow to drain this excess. The Fed's reserve a repo operation, uh, the de facto add-on to the Treasury bill market, totaled $2.199 trillion um, uh, on Thursday's operation, and that's just a few billion below the peak reach Earlier this year. High interest rates will slow some of the interest-sensitive sectors, such as the home and automobile sales, but the Fed really needs to drain liquidity, and they have barely scratched the surface on that. Another bit of encouraging news came from the downtick in the University of Michigan one-year inflation expectation from 5.2% to 5%, but of course, this is still a very high number. And consumer sentiment is that inflation will continue to be a problem for the foreseeable future, which historically is a leading indicator of future inflation. As a result of the recent better-than-expected economic data, Fed Fund futures market is indicating only about 50% chance now of a 75 basis point hike in September, and the Fed Funds will peak at 3.6% in the first quarter of next year. Hopefully, market participants will enjoy the final days of summer because we should expect that volatility will return with a vengeance in the fall. All right, Rich, let me bring you in here just to um, pick on on some of the things that have caught your attention in the last few weeks. Could be markets, could be performance, um, could be the health of the battleship, of course. How are you doing? Well, oh.
1: if, if you remember the last time I was on, we were talking about how unusual it is that we haven't had a major retracement in our, the performance of our models for um, uh, the, the, the calendar year to date. But immediately the podcast ended, things went south, and uh, I took a bit of a battering um, with some of the trades that uh, – uh, so, so So the question is we'd, we'd had this magnificent run um, year to date um, up until that point. And the things that we'd committed most to were those, those markets that were trending the best. Um, So inevitably, in those circumstances, with those markets that we are heavily engaged in, they're the ones that give the give back when the trend turns. Because, for instance, I was committed with all my systems on some of these great trends that we'd been riding for the first six months. And then um, come July, um, bang, those particular markets were the ones that had big give back. So it was painful for me. But it is an inevitable consequence of our method that we do necessarily have to have these give-back periods whenever the trends turn. Um, so um, it's just part and parcel. And when you look back to 2008 or any of the, the times that's uh, we've had a, a fantastic run. Uh, inevitably, the months after that fantastic run are uh, quite significant retracements of that performance simply because um, all of that unrealized equity that we were trading at that point of the time that the trends turned, um, uh, that was taken off the table during those periods. So, uh, you know, I got hammered in July, but uh, this month um, I'm pretty well flatlining So uh, the good thing about our models is that um, as we do sort of uh, take this hammering, we're releasing risk all the time. So there does come a point where you start flatlining, and and fortunately this month I'm flatlining as opposed to continuing to build a a, a drawdown descent. Um, So I'm I'm pretty happy now that the pain is over, and now I'm just waiting to see what emerges. And you know, London sugar is one example that. Yeah, it's quite a good trend that's emerging for me at the moment,
0: but that's pretty well about it. That's all I can sing about at the moment. No pain, no gain, as they say. Um, but, it's, you, but you're right. I mean, I think it is true that generally speaking, uh, if you look at the uh, July numbers, I mean, yeah, they were different uh, manager by manager depending on, you know, allocation size and sector sort of uh, – exposure and all of those things. But generally speaking, uh, at least compared to the f- uh, first six months of the year, it was relatively uh, moderate in terms of the give back. And uh, as you rightly say, August looks like some of these um, trends uh, seem to be um, you know, coming back uh, to, to some extent. I was looking at the number of sort of the performance for this week. And <clears throat> frankly, I think it's been probably a pretty mixed week in terms of performance in the wake of all this market action following the CPI data. And, you know, this is probably um, mainly uh, based on what direction your fixed income uh, exposure is at the moment, maybe to some extent equity exposure, although I do think that that's probably somewhat smaller than the fixed income exposure. Um, that's really going to be uh, the driver of performance for, for this week. And what's funny about that is, of course, that last week I did the debate with Alan a little bit because there were these articles out from Nomura and JP Morgan talking about how trend followers had flipped their short fixed income exposure to being flat, and of course this week fixed income markets is selling off. Um, so it'll be interesting to see whether that really is true. Because uh, I think both Al and I were very skeptical about these claims, and I have no idea how they get these, uh, uh, yeah, these sort of. Um, de facto uh, what CTAs are doing, uh, statements from. Um, but anyways, um, from uh, the firms that I know pretty well, let's uh, call it that, um, we certainly didn't flip any fixed income uh, exposure. And I think Friday, uh, obviously the numbers I'm going to quote now are as of Thursday, but Friday I think was an okay day for for trend following. One, one two, Maybe two markets that, at least in the markets that I monitor, stood out a little bit um, so far in in, in August um, is uh, Dutch net gas uh, because of the soaring prices in in uh, in the net gas in European net gas markets um, that has been a, a meaningful contributor and also the Mexican peso the Mexican peso uh, is uh, moving higher against the dollar uh, unlike many other currencies and it's back uh, almost touching its uh, high um, back in uh, from back in June. Um, so those were kind of two single markets that, at least in the markets I follow, uh, stood out a little bit. My trend barometer, on the other hand, that is still pretty weak. I mean, it finished at 20 uh, as of yesterday. It obviously had a horrid close of 14, I think, at the end of July, confirming uh, confirming the give back. Yeah, that's a lot. As you hey. said. <laughs> that is very low. Um, but anyway, it's a shorter term uh, indicator, but... Um, the consistency that we saw in the first six months where it was generally high and really confirming the strong period um, obviously has been challenged a little bit in July and August so far. But when I look at the numbers so far in August, the beta 50 down 97 basis points, still up 11 and a half for the year. SockGen CTA down 76 basis points for August, down uh, sorry, up 16 and a half for the year. And the SockGen trend index down about almost 1%, but still up 22% uh, for the year. And the short-term traders' index is up about twelve basis points so far in August, up ten and a half. Still very solid uh, year on on all fronts. Whether you're short-term or medium-term or long-term, uh, you are doing well. Uh, MSCI uh, index, the equity side, is doing okay this uh, month, up three point two percent for August, but still down twelve and a quarter for the year. And once again, we see the world government bond index taking a little bit of a, a beating in August, down uh, eighty-one basis points. Uh, Although it had a strong July, but that's really, I think, July is the only positive month so far this year. So uh, we have some um, questions coming in, uh, or that came in, uh, two in particular um, that we're going to talk about. One is from Gareth, the other one from Antonio. Let's start out with the one from Gareth, because he actually refers back to our last conversation uh, in the... Uh, systematic uh, series, uh, episode 201, Uh, Gareth writes, uh, you both discussed adding or altering your trading system by reviewing the most recent year's worth of data. How do you avoid overfitting the data in this case? For instance, you may find that the 21-day moving average system now has better risk-reward matrix than your current 25-day moving average system, but that doesn't mean that the future performance of the 21-day strategy will outperform. Would it not, uh, would it not just be better to be agnostic uh, to the precise measurement of the short-term trend and equate and equally weight many systems uh, using, say, a 21 day, a 22 day, 23 day, 24 day, etc. Perhaps you have some data that suggests there is some autocorrelation in the returns for your different systems as well. For instance, short-term trend may have a lost decade where long-term trend works really well. If that's the case, then maybe it makes sense to overweight outperforming timeframes based on last year's data. How do you balance the desire to tweak your system based on recent performance versus maintaining diversification and avoiding recency bias? So this is actually a great question. Um, and uh, I wanted you to talk about it first. I may, may have some a few things to add to it. But of course, this is kind of part of your core um, design um, it's a design feature in your system so why don't you take it from here rich and, and let us know what you think about this yes Niels. I, I thought it was a great question from gareth so um but look i think he might have interpreted
1: us incorrectly because um, the particular adaptive process that i use it does not use a small da- um, sample set so um, when we talk about uh, we undertake this workflow process each year um, from um, our workflow that we undertake, we're adding an additional year of data to our existing data history. Um, So, for instance, if, for instance, I'm I'm testing a workflow process of a trend-following model um, over a 30-year history and a new year has just come by, I now have a 31-year history um, or an increased sample set um, to undertake my processes on. So, um, my particular workflow processes use two forms of testing. One is what I call the robustness phase um, and that's where I assess the robustness of my trend-following models to the entire data set. So um, when, for instance, I'm testing a trend-following model on um, a 30-year data series, uh, I'm also testing it across my 55 other markets. So um, uh, that gives me an alternate possible history of 55 other alternate possible histories. So uh, it's a massive sample size I'm testing my model on. And then when a new year comes by, I'm adding a year on not just for that market, but for every other market in my universe of which, therefore, um, that additional years of data actually is quite a large sample size, not just a year for a single market. It's a year for my entire portfolio, which I test my models consistently across. So that's the robustness phase. And if they pass that test, um, that's simply to say, how well do my models perform on a broad different class of alternate possible market histories that have been presented in the past? If they pass that phase, I give them a tick because they're robust for um, this array of possible histories. We don't know what the future is going to be, but I do know that they're robust in relation to what history has presented to them so far. Now that they've passed that um, robustness phase, that reduces my sample set of past candidates. So the first stage is they've got to get to that that first subset of being robust before they are considered for the adaptive phase of my workflow process. So when I look at the adaptive phase, I'm not just simply using the last year of data as a basis to um, optimize my strategies for current market conditions. I'm using a window of about 20 years of data, um, but it's a rolling window. So each year, the 20 years goes up one year, goes up one year, goes up one year. So we're using a 20-year interval. And so what that's doing is it's not optimising my trend-following models to a particular regime. What it is doing is it's enforcing this adaptability into my process. So if they've passed the first stage of robustness and they've passed the second stage of adaptability. I know that I've got a robust portfolio that is slowly progressively evolving towards what I call a sharp portfolio. In other words, over the course of time, if you treat your trading strategies as static and never changing, your portfolio over time will get blunt as new data emerges that has never been seen before. So what this adaptive component of the workflow process does is it's continually sharpening the, the um, portfolio using a long-term data set across multiple different regimes to just sharpen it, sharpen it, sharpen it each year to ensure that it meets both of those criteria. So that's how I do it. It's a slow adaptive process um, uh, uh, reflecting the fact that markets are not static and they evolve. Um, so what I find with this process is that if they pass the robustness test and they pass the adaptability test, because I'm passing this workflow process for a single trend-following model across my entire portfolio, the solutions that pass are loose pants. They've got to be to be able to pass all the alternate histories that they've been presented with. If they are conditioned for a particular market or a particular regime, uh, they don't necessarily work in all of these different alternate histories. So as you can see, the model actually produces an output of loose pants, but very robust, and they do have an adaptive component
0: in it. Does that make sense? It does make sense, and I think it was very uh, eloquently um, described. I don't have much to add to it, but I want to make a couple of further points to Garrett. Garrett, in your example, you talk about something that is very precise, saying, well, should we choose the 21-day or the 24-day or the 25-day? I just want to make absolutely clear that that we, you know, at least it, to my understanding, as an industry of trend followers, we are not looking for precision. So we don't care if it's 22-day or 23-day. What we would do, and, and you kind of suggest where you say we should equate many systems, I agree with that, but it shouldn't be 21 or 23 and 24. It should be 30, 40, 50. You need much bigger intervals in between and you need to obviously get to a point where um, you also have the longer, ter- well, in my opinion, I should say, to also have the much longer-term uh, horizons you know, uh, included as well. So uh, so that's one thing I wanted to say. The other thing I, I, I can certainly share is that uh, although we do differently, but, but certainly at done, we have since 2006, we have had an adaptive process when it comes to parameter selection, uh, it's systematized, so it's not based on, oh, we think we should have 25% in short term and 50% in medium term and 25% in long term uh, look back periods. This is all rule ba- based rules um, based. so we have quite a long history in in doing something not not like uh, exactly like rich, but but doing something where parameters and look backs, etc. Cetera, etc. is not static. And um I think certainly that has been one of the uh, features that has helped us uh, evolve the way we would like to see our trend following systems evolve so so I'm I'm in favor of that but it also is a very important point that rich makes and that is the thing is that we are just adding more data to to the to the series so essentially we're just trying to um, allow the model to see the full data set and not say well you can only see the first 20 years and then you have to guess the rest we we wanted to see the full, period. Because you could argue, and I know there are probably people with PhDs and all that, that could argue um, something completely different. But but I would say, if you, it's better to have a 50-year history than, it, than to have a 20-year history. If you can find models that have done well over 50 years, to me, that is a good sign. Similarly, I would say about managers, I mean, the fact that Dunn has 47 plus years of track record, I think that's better, frankly, than someone who has a five-year track record. So these are obviously personal uh, opinions, but um, it's the same principle um, to some degree. All right, Rich, ready for the next question? This is from Antonio. Antonio writes, I hope you're both well and enjoying your summers. Well, it's actually winter for you, Rich, because I think Antonio (laughs) thought that it was going to be Jerry that I would put this question to, Um, but instead it's another outlier (laughs) trend-following manager. (laughs) Anyways, who has loose pants? So that's a good thing. Focusing, so Antonio writes, focusing only on short seasonal trading, adding one too many parameters and avoiding certain asset class exposures or potential directions are a few examples that are criticized for reducing sample size. Can you define thresholds for adequate sample size? Why is a larger sample size advantageous for trend following? Would you agree a small sample size provides the manager more uncertainty, uh, i.e. it reduces statistical confidence? Would you also agree that trend following is best suited for uncertain, small sample, chaotic, irrational market situations? If both are true, should trend following not seek low sample size ideas, strategies and markets where information is new, incomplete, and or involve less market participants. So great question, Antonio, because you're touching on all the things that we we hear people say the opposite. And um, luckily, we have one of them here today to, uh, to talk about this. I, I love this question from
1: Antonio, because it allows us to have a chance to respond and, and at least get across our opinion and our interpretation. But it was a great question. So This is – I'd like to invest a bit of time in this question because there's lots of great points in it. Um, Okay. So the first part of his question where he says focusing only on short seasonal trading, adding one too many parameters and avoiding certain asset class exposures um, are criticised in reducing sample size. Now, the bottom line is that is correct because uh, when you reduce your trade sample size – it actually is a symptom from you fitting a trading strategy to a desired outcome. So, for example, if I I want to just trade short, I'm eliminating long trades from that trade distribution of returns, and that is reducing the possible sample size that the market delivers. Uh, If, for instance, I only want to invest in one type of seasonal trading strategy uh, that targets a specific regime, uh, that eliminates other possible seasonal variations and if i'm adding too many parameters to the strategy uh, what that's doing is it's too closely fitting that strategy to a narrow data set and um, this is where it's basically fitting a strategy to a reduced sample space of total possibilities that's an important concept as you reduce your sample size Um, what that's doing is it's reducing your participation in a smaller sample set of possible outcomes. Um, So all these methods of reducing sample size through um, what traders elect to do in seeking a desired outcome actually is restricting the possibilities of the information contained in that sample set. Um, So as you're reducing your sample size, there's less and less information available in that reduced sample size. Now, if we also accept that markets are efficient in nature, as you reduce your sample size, there's not only reduced information, there's increased relative noise. The relationship between noise to signal changes as you reduce your sample size. That's very important because what it means is that With reduced information, your ability to extract information to make a probability assessment is reduced as opposed to increased. As you increase your sample size, the information content in that data increases relative to the noise, and the amount of information increases to increase the probability weight of your distribution. Um, So... What this is saying is that when you reduce sample size, it actually introduces risk into a strategy. And it's the risk of, of error from small sample size because the market might have different plans to what your desired outcomes are. Your desired outcomes are, I only want to trade long. I only want to trade this particular season. I want to um, add parameters to my model to make it more complex, to to fit it to a particular condition. But the market says, hey, I've got all of these other possible outcomes on my mind here, and I might deliver them to you. And your model, um, because it has been fit to that desired outcome won't be fit to the outcome I'm going to give you. And therefore, this is where the the risk arises. So reduced sample size introduces risk into a strategy. So a challenge for us trend followers when we are targeting these outliers is that outliers by definition are few and far between. So if we take a single market, um, let's take an example, over a 30-year history I might actually only have three outliers in that single market. Now, considering when we look at our trade distribution of results, about 10% of our trades actually get these outliers. 90% of our trades sort of never manage to latch on significantly to an outlier. And we get 90% of our trades representing linear losses and linear wins. Only 10% get that, the, the nature of that outlier. And if there are only three outliers in that series of 30 years, with 10%, that's 10 trade attempts, that's a trade sample of 30 per market. That that trade sample for a single market is incredibly low, very low information content in that trade sample for a single market. So what a trend follower does is they say, well, we don't trade a single market. We trade a diversified portfolio, but we apply trend-following models in the same way Across that entire portfolio. And that therefore says we have 30 trades per market times, well, in Jerry's case, 200 markets. That's 30 by 200 by 30 years of history. That is significantly increasing the sample size and it's increasing the information relating to the outliers that are being pulled from that portfolio distribution of returns. We won't get enough information from a small sample of a single return, but we will get sufficient information when those outliers are across a portfolio distribution that's heavily diversified. So this this importantly raises this um, notion of um, information in the data. And Nassim Taleb uh, this last week posed a very interesting tweet Uh, where he said uh, high-volatility regimes have very little information. They offer no information. Now, this is what we also find when we approach the tails of the distribution of returns. So uh, Mark Resepsinski has often talked about how uh, we're targeting the tails and in the regions that we specialise, they're almost approaching what we call a Cauchy distribution as opposed to a normal distribution. Now, statisticians hate Couchy distributions because they are information deficient. They don't have a single mean. They don't have a single median. They are actually regarded as, if you look it up, you'll see that they're called pathological distributions. They're pathological because they can do anything. Because when we look at um, the particular characteristics of a market under stable Um, market regimes, such as in periods of equilibrium, there is a lot of information we can extract from that to allow us to apply mean reverting techniques, et cetera, based on the notion of there is an equilibrium, price oscillates around that equilibrium, there is a single mean, there is a median, it follows a very regular distribution, almost a normal distribution with a bit of a peak around the equilibrium. There is a lot of information in that. But as you move out to the tails, you're you're getting to the verge of what we call chaos, where things um, go from predictable and normal to um, unpredictable and chaotic. This is where we start getting this couchy distribution unfolding, where price can do anything. Price has very little information in it. So for a trend follower, We use a design constraint as opposed to the information in our strategy. So we're not using as much. We're not not relying as much on features such as correlations, which are um, very useful for convergence strategies that are trying to manage risk within stability thresholds. Out here in the tails where things are chaotic, unpredictable, We don't have that joy of any information relating to correlations. They break down, typically, in the tails of the distribution. Things get weird. Things get extreme. Massive price moves that um, are never predicted through uh, our assumptions of a normal distribution. Um, The price can do anything. There is very little information. So in this context of little information, we apply an asymmetrical design. And what that asymmetrical design does is it says, We know there's little information out here price can do anything it can even go to infinity but what we will do is we will apply a design constraint where we cut losses short and let profits run that is a very simple design statement that removes our need to extract information from that data now the only reason we need a large sample size for our trend following models is not to catch the outliers we know that we can do that because we allow for unlimited upside potential because we let profits run. We don't have profit targets, for instance, um, a classic trend follower won't have a profit target. They will have an exit, a means to exit from that trend, but that is not setting a target because we think price can do anything. There is no information. So from the outliers perspective, there's no information that we can attach to it. That's why Jerry and I have our little problem when we talk about volatility targeting because we're saying in this chaotic regime, there is no information about volatility that gives us an additional edge Uh, we're saying that in this particular chaotic regime, uh, anything can happen with price. It can have low volatility, high volatility, um, upward directional volatility, um, downward directional volatility. It can do anything. But what we'd say is we don't participate in that, that bulk of the distribution of the market returns, which are more appealing to a convergent trader, where those concepts have more validity than what we do. But what we do do, So we've talked about outliers, very little information that can be attached, but we have a system that can extract that. But what we do use our sample size for and why we apply it across our portfolio is to extract information critical for risk management purposes, not to catch the outlier. Our systems do that. It's risk management. How small is our bet size? Where do we place our initial stop? where do we place our trailing stop That comes from sample size. So that uh, that demands that we use sample size not for our profit intentions but for our risk intentions, our risk management intentions. So that's effectively uh, why we need this large sample size uh, whereas our designs, um, you know, work on limited information. We get information when we enter a trade, where to place our initial stop. So at the point of entry in a trade, we're not in a chaotic regime yet. We are hoping to enter the chaotic regime. So we are entering a trend when it starts to get material. And then uh, we place our bet based on available history associated with that Normal distribution or the bulk of the normal distribution of returns. We've got a lot of information there we can use to set our risk constraints uh, to preserve our capital. When the trade is taken, we don't know what the trade's going to do into the future. And we have very loose pants and are allowed to do whatever it likes because it is information deficient. Does that make sense?
0: I mean, I love that uh, explanation. That was a, a true masterclass, uh, Rich. Um, But there's one thing that comes out of that, uh, which I think is worth just uh, exploring a little bit because, of course, uh, sample size is one of the uh, things or the terms that is uh, used a lot uh, when we talk about these things. But, of course, as you alluded to, there is this difference between the very loose pants, uh, one entry, one stop, uh, one exit. And then, although I still don't like the word volatility targeting... Um, I would prefer to call it sort of a dynamic position sizing. Um, but, but I do think there's one thing that, that, that and, and you can agree or disagree with with my observation here. but I' I'm always, I'm always trying to, because I, I say often uh, on the podcast, well, I don't really see any difference in the data right. I don't see any one group pe- performing much better than the other group. but so here's one thing maybe to, to, uh, to put that in perspective. So you rightly say that you and Jerry and people who um, apply that um, sort of very classical trend-following um, approach, you are really only concerned, or your main focus and is to capture these 5% of the trades, which are the outliers. That is what you're there for. While it is argued, I'm not sure I fully agree, but it has been argued uh, that people who use dynamic risk adjustment uh, adjusting um, positions they may not catch the outliers with as much profit um as as you might or as Jerry might i I'm not sure I agree with that because I also see how dynamic position sizing can increase positions even at a time where you are uh, kind of giving back some of your p l and then if the trade takes off again you actually have a pretty good size. So anyway, but that's not that's not the point I want to make. Maybe the reason why I don't see any difference in performance is that people who are using dynamic position sizing, they do much better in the portion of the trades that may not be the outliers, but are the profitable trades. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, th- are the profitable trades that where you may end up giving back too much because of your loose pants, they might actually make some money from it. Um, and also, if there is a, 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 a kind of a losing trade, they may lose less and you may lose the full amount. So, But but I think it's important for people to understand that that's probably where the difference lies between one approach and the other, that one approach relies on making most of its profits from very few trades, but the other one will do some of that, but will also make reasonable amount of money from trades that doesn't become an outlier, but we know there are much, many more of the non-outliers yet still profitable trades than the outliers. And so I'm kind of thinking in my head, um, and I know you wouldn't agree to this, but I'm kind of thinking in my head, why not do both? <laughs> I mean, why, why do we have to choose one or the other And maybe there's a good reason uh, why why we have to, but but I I do think that 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 we don't have to be in one camp or the other. And as I said before, I'm not so sure that dynamic position sizing means that you can't make as much money in the outliers. I don't know. Um, But anyway, I just wanted to make that uh, point because I think people sometimes are a little bit confused uh, with why isn't there a difference in performance? But this could be the reason why there isn't much of a difference in performance. When we talk about the long-term CAGR, in terms of month by month and and year by year, sure. And and we know, and a good example of this is that in the last 18, 24 months, some of the systems that have done the best is the simpler, uh, I, w- I wouldn't call it, a sim- not meaning simpler in, in a negative way, but uh, things that, uh, non-dynamically, position sizing systems, let's call them that, um, because there have been a nice amount of outlier trades. So that's why they were were maybe probably doing better. But then maybe when we have these corrections, as you talked about in July and and so on and so forth, we, we see the difference. So would you say that's a reasonable way of explaining the difference? I think that's a great, great way of explaining
1: it. In other words, what, what that's saying is that I choose... Uh, with my philosophy to focus on that 10% of trades. Um, that's because um, I'm inherently mistrusting of stable environments. I'm a, I'm a classic sceptic when it comes to trusting anything. I've seen too many complex systems do crazy things be- and uh, the ability of our human brains, we, we always try and see order. Um, we always like to see stability, predictability, all of these things that really cuts against my philosophy. So I choose to focus on that 10%. Now, I think these other methods you're talking about, they aren't. They're they're, they're choosing to focus on some of that 10%, but also that 90% of trades I don't worry about. And that's where um, they're getting a blend of these two outcomes. I'm focusing specifically on the tail region. They are prepared to entertain uh, a smoother result because not only um, does it sort of offer a sort of a a greater sort of, uh, you know, ensemble of different edges as opposed to a strict edge that I'm looking at, it also really assists raising AUM as uh, offering a smooth uh, equity curve because investors can enter a program at any point in time. And what they don't want to be doing is entering a program when suddenly it takes a nosedive of 30-35% and they're taking a while um, wondering whether it's failed already as soon as they've entered it. They want to enter a smooth um, approach. But because I'm a single trader and I know Jerry, Jerry is now able to do what he wants to do. He's less sort of um, guided by AUM, he's more guided by his philosophy. I'm guided by my philosophy because I'm trading my own strategies. And so, therefore, we choose to inhabit this region. Now, one of the reasons I choose to inhabit it is that when I look at any complex system, the major change is from tail events. Um, um, Tail events are what, in fact, make up almost all of the change over a very, very long data set uh, of that entire system, tail events. I'm focusing on them because I'm not concerned about the re- small change, what I call a small change of predictable oscillations um, during stable regimes. I, I couldn't care less about that. It's too small in my schemata of things. That, that, that's my philosophy, Niels and you captured that exactly with your statement.
0: Well, we're going to stay with some of these um, concepts because you brought along some really cool uh, topics for us to uh, to dive into. So as usual, I'm going to let you uh, set the stage. Uh, the first uh, topic is uh, what we refer to uh, when we in our conversations uh, talk about warehousing risk as opposed to recognizing risk, or, or I think you have another term for it. So uh, tell us a little bit about that, uh, Rich. Yeah, so um, this concept of warehousing risk tends to be whispered amongst us trend followers
1: as we're talking to each other, and we're talking about alternate strategies where we say, oh, so they've got a very smooth equity curve, but I reckon they're warehousing risk. And, you know, when you look at long-term capital management, you see this example of a classic fantastic equity curve that suddenly falls off the cliff. Mm. That is a symptom of warehousing risk. Typically, it's a symptom of negative skew Mm. that um, inhabits their distribution of trade returns that they might not necessarily see through their measures of um, risk management, risk transference, et cetera. They won't see it until it's possibly too late to do anything about, and then they find that they've got a a significant risk event that was never measured in their models when they're using SHARP and other volatility-based metrics. They're not picking up this risk, and we're referring this as warehouse risk. So there is a general principle in the markets that um, risk can never be removed, but it can be transferred. And When uh, we're looking at portfolio managers, they're experts at risk transference because a portfolio uh, is the basis for us to be able to hold more risk um, in the portfolio than um, what a single return stream can stomach. So what I mean is that if you're a trend follower trading a single market you're going to find that um, you've got a very volatile equity curve. You might only have a few outliers in that market. Uh, It's going to be incredibly volatile. You'll be holding a lot of um, risk signature in that single market. But at the diversified portfolio level, when you start consolidating all of these different return streams together, you get correlation offsets occurring at the portfolio level, which is a means for the portfolio to basically hold more risk but the risk was never, uh, never disappeared from those individual return streams. It's just been offset through correlation offsets in the portfolio. So this allows a portfolio to be much more capital efficient, hold much more risk than what the individual return streams can hold. But what that does is that therefore um, ensures that a portfolio has to operate within model thresholds. In other words, whilst we recognise a portfolio can absorb more risk than its individual return streams, we've got to um, basically constrain that portfolio to operate within um, upper and lower thresholds uh, because we know that the risk um, in sort of unusual exotic circumstances can get a lot more when it navigates outside of those threshold boundaries. So we've got to constrain it within those boundaries. Now, most portfolio managers use correlations as a means to manage the thresholds of risk within their portfolio. So um, they choose, therefore, very uncorrelated markets to hopefully create this great uh, correlation offset in the portfolio so they can hold more markets in their portfolio, allow greater diversification with lower um, lower um, realised risk, lower, uh, what do I call it? Um, expected risk e- Expected as well. risk or explicit risk, but... Within that portfolio lies warehouse risk. The warehouse risk associated with what happens if it goes outside of those thresholds. That can actually catapult a portfolio into oblivion. So, trend followers know all about this, and that's why they have these whispering conversations about warehousing risk. Um, but what we do with our individual models is that we explicitly release that risk with our models. We don't hold on to it. We never hold on to risk for a single return stream. So we're using small bets, initial stop, and an exit condition in our design statement to release that risk. So whilst we said that risk can never be removed, but it can be transferred, it actually can be released when we exit that trade. So we're using these design constraints to manage risk and are less reliant on the threshold constraints of, say, correlations to manage risk at the portfolio level. Uh, This is because we have this appreciation that risk is far wider than what is seen through the track record of an equity curve over a a small sample size. We know that um, with these very large data sample sets where risk events have occurred, which we've never seen in the past, we can suddenly lie well outside those threshold threshold boundaries that we assume portfolios are operating at. So The risk warehouses, so what you find is that um, these more sophisticated methods of risk transference to manage risk, such as using correlation matrices and all of these things, using history, uh, dependency on the backtest, et cetera, You can see the complicated pickle that people get into when markets refuse to pay ball, uh, to play ball and observe those historical relationships or those historical correlation relationships, because we know correlations are never static. They change over time. Markets are adaptive in nature, they evolve. And so uh, those people that use those uh, more sophisticated transference techniques, as opposed to our less sophisticated design mitigation, techniques, they find that they can get themselves into an awful pickle because what they're doing is they're using these correlation matrices to transfer risk around the portfolio to create beneficial offsets. So as opposed to us applying an equal bet for each of our return streams in our portfolio with our design constraints, they're transferring risk around the portfolio to where things are less correlated, more correlated, et cetera. And what happens is that can in rare circumstances, bring down an entire portfolio because suddenly one of these return streams has this exceptional risk embedded in it at the expense of the other return streams in the portfolio and the entire portfolio, like a house of cards, comes crashing down. So that's why a classic trend follower, small bets, equal risk bets per return stream, designs design constraints that release risk so we're not holding on to risk. We're never letting those those threads in our portfolio get an undue weighting. We're all treating them all equally balanced. The portfolio is always balanced, releasing risk all the time. So what that means is that at any particular point in time, we're capable of taking on new risk as opposed to being laden down with old risk with a portfolio that has refused to release that warehouse risk. Because we're always releasing risk, we're capable of taking on new risk. So that means as we're entering new, exotic, unseen environments we've never seen before, a trend-following model is perfectly positioned to absorb that new risk from those environments as opposed to being laden down with old risk and suddenly finding they get crippled but through the introduction of new risk, which is just amplifying that old risk that existed before. Does that make sense?
0: It makes perfect sense, and I just want to add to that. Even if we don't necessarily release risk on a daily basis, we recognize risk, and that's how how I heard the the uh, the thing you refer to. That even though we can't remove risk, can't be removed, and um, it can be transferred. But I, when I heard Bill Dreyes talk about this many years ago, um, we we talked about this: the fact that trend follows. We recognize risk every day. Unlike, and, and this is not to pick on any particular strategy, but if you invest in say unlisted securities you don't get a new uh, price of that, uh, you know, security on a daily basis. That's what we do. And that's how we recognize that real risk in the portfolio. In addition to, as you say, we have all these features that actually will release the risk when they become, um, you know, uh, set to our, or when they touch the set level that we've decided upon. So it's it's very important concept. And uh, I'm glad you took time to um, to talk about this today um rich Tails, you win yes. morgan housel is back with a <laughs> uh, with a uh, he's back with another great article um we're into uh, Walt Disney disneyland and stuff like that i i see uh maybe uh, uh, kind of a short uh, comment to uh, to that because i know we have two other points that we want to or topics that we want to touch on the, the
1: interesting thing is all of these topics so far in this podcast—they they, they sort of all connect together. It's sort of um, it's a indeed. connecting yeah. narrative. But uh, I love this yeah. article from Morgan and "Tales You Win." Uh, fantastic article, and the article is basically suggesting that um, long tails drive everything. Um, every complex system, every business system, um, everywhere you look, it's the long tails that drive exceptional performance. So his article starts off where he talks about um, the success of Walt Disney in um, um, the, particularly in the development of these cartoons, and it, you know um, that they, they 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 sort of developed cartoons, but their success was determined by one of those cartoons after a history of about four hundred of them. So they had these 400 cartoons that everybody liked, but um, Walt Disney was struggling financially. And then one cartoon came out, which was Seven uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and that changed the landscape of Walt Disney. Uh, everything, the, the business company debts were all paid off. Um, key employees got retention bonuses. Um, they purchased a new state-of-the-art studio, Um, In Burbank, where it remains today. All of these things was from this one tail event. Um, And then Morgan goes on to say long tails are driving everything. They dominate business, investing, sports, politics, products, careers, everything. And then he applies a rule of thumb. He says anything that is huge, profitable, famous, or influential is the result of a tail event. And this really just hits the nail into the, into the floorboards for a classic trend follower. We love to hear these sort of statements. And another rule of thumb he, he started talking about, which is very interesting because this is where um, a human bias comes in. Because if most of our attention goes to things that are huge, profitable, famous or influential, which are driven by the tails. When most of uh, you, what you pay attention to are these very large things, this results in you underestimating how rare and powerful these events really are because you are used to just looking at these tail events. You're starting to think that they're all just normal events. You're, you're sort of um, you're losing the grip of how seriously big they are and influential. Um, so that's a very important bias Uh, But then he goes on to talk about different types of businesses. Venture capital driven by um, tail events. Uh, He talks about um, the S&P 500 is driven by tail events. In other words, five of the companies drive the majority of the performance returns of the entire S&P 500. We look at the NASDAQ. Uh, We get exactly the same phenomenon arising there, but the skew is even greater. Uh, we look look at things such as Amazon, uh, Google, all of these firms, you know, um, we we see it's not only representative in the equity indices, it's represented in the very businesses. Um, It's represented in the products that they sell, like iPhone, which was a magnificent tail event for Apple. Um, Then we see Warren Buffett's uh, performance history and, uh, you know, Charlie Munger talking about You know, what was actually responsible for the major success story of his entire history? And it comes down to just a handful of these major tale events. And really, that just summed up by Morgan saying, um, everywhere you go, um, long tails are everywhere. And I just thought it was a magnificent article. And
0: uh, yeah, what do you think? No, no. I mean, of course, uh, this is uh, this is our gospel, and uh, and we love it. And what's important about the articles that people like Morgan Housel writes and others is they they um they use different words than we do. They um they do use different examples uh, than we do, and it helps, I think, broaden the audience and the acceptance and the understanding, the true understanding of what it is we do and what it is we uh, we preach, uh, so to speak. Um, so it's incredibly uh, powerful. It's incredibly beneficial for us as an industry when you have people with those kind of skills, like Morgan Housel and, and others, of course, um, who are able to essentially tell the stories that we fail to tell. Meaning, we we often talk about this about the the power of narrative and storytelling and. Yeah, as trend follows, we probably struggle a little bit uh, with that part. Um, but then we have people to help us out, and and this is a beautiful story. Uh, you laid it out beautifully, and um, yeah, hopefully they'll. Be, uh, and there are so many more of them already out there. Um, and but what is, is interesting when you start looking for for um, some narrative that kind of um, tells our story, there is more about you know I also think Jerry tweeted something about um, George Soros uh, this week um, where he uses words and phrases and and explains things exactly like we would and of course it he has a lot more clout. So if we can convert people uh, to think like we do uh, with the help of these uh, giants and and we all stand on the shoulders of giants at the end of the day um, then that's uh, that's a really good um, thing. So yeah, thank you for bringing that one up um, and making it a a, a fun uh, fairy tale for the uh, <laughs> trend following uh, for the trend following community today. Now, but it doesn't stop there as as, uh, no, it keeps as going as Steve jo- Steve, <laughs> Steve Jobs and Tim Cook always says. But there wait, but there's more <laughs> and uh, and so the third uh, thing and maybe we do have to be a little bit. Uh, conscious about time, of course, is the three big things that really matter when it comes to trend following. Now, that is, if that isn't a a catchy title of a topic, uh, Rich, um, I'm excited to hear where we're going with that.
1: Yeah, well, this sort of um, puts a close to the Morgan Housel article and and the topics we've been discussing. So you might want to leave the last topic for a later podcast. So this basically just puts a cap on the Morgan Housel article where – I, I did a series of tweets where um, when you think about tail events, um, uh, it's important to think about this notion of scale. And so um, the, the, the tweets that I did was basically saying that scale is an amazing thing. Because when you trade a trend following strategy, it's very hard to reconcile scale based on assess- an assessment of most of our trades. So as we've already talked about with this of our distribution versus 10% of our distribution being tails, 90% being bulk. Most of our trades, or 90% of them, are small losses or small wins. Um, Small losses because we cut losses short. Um, We never let ourselves go to the left tail of our trade distribution because we're always cutting losses short, which means we stunt our losses to be these linear losses. And we do get quite a large number of very small wins that are just, you know, effectively random gyrations of just wins and losses. And so when we commence a trend-following portfolio, um, typically for most traders, they want to see an immediate uh, improvement in their equity curve as soon as they start a trading strategy. So, you know, um, when when a, a trader first develops their trading strategy and their portfolio and they launch it live, they want to see that performance immediately start going towards the stars and they're very disappointed, particularly a trend follower, when they find that the first 100 trades, 150 trades, 200 trades, are either... Sending them into a drawdown or stagnating and not getting anywhere. And they're starting to go, oh, is my system working? You know, this whole back test, is it, is it a myth? You know, what what was going on? But see, they've been caught up in the scale of these linear events. And so um, after 100, 150 trades, they think that these small moves of up and down or stagnation are big moves and they start to get really worried about it because their brain is focusing on this sequence of small losses, slowly building, 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 and the magnitude of them in their minds gets to be quite large. But then suddenly from out of left field, one of these 10 percenters come along. Bang! Their equity curve suddenly rockets off to such a, a large extent that they were never expecting because their minds had trained themselves to think in terms of this volatile drawdown, small wins, small losses. Suddenly it takes off um, many orders of magnitude more than you could ever expect. And suddenly the whole philosophy of trend following crystallizes and you start saying, ah, that one extreme win paid for all of that pain of the last 150, 200 trades. Now, when we look at scale and we look at it in this concept, we've got to step back, zoom back, zoom back all the time. Don't worry about the minute because it's a very volatile level of minute, but um, these extreme um, tail events are doing all of the heavy lifting of our uh, performance. Now, what, that's when we look at a single return stream. We get this 150 trades of nothing, then a, um, a big outlier. But, but when we consolidate all of this into a portfolio, we find that our outliers are much more well distributed throughout the entire portfolio. So you might only have 50 trades before you get an outlier. You might have another, you know, 20 trades, another outlier in another market somewhere. Outliers do not necessarily correlate all together at the same time. They can be widely distributed and we're taking advantage of all of that. So what that does is if you start looking at the manute at the small scale, you lose the context of what our whole process is about. You've got to look at it in the context of a diversified portfolio, and you've got to look at it in the terms of a very general scale appreciation, a broad outlook to see what is doing the heavy lifting of our portfolio. So, um, and a good thing that <clears throat> Jerry and I often talk about is we, we, we are big fans of using our realised balance as a means to preserve our capital. And, you know, George Soros said this as well. He said that, Um, He spends all of his effort preserving his capital, but when he is making a bet with unrealized equity, he's taking a big bet. He's risking a lot um, when he's letting those profits run, provided he is preserving his capital. And that's what Jerry and I um, are big fans of. We preserve our capital. So we look at our realized balance as opposed to uh, the mark-to-market style you'll see in a monthly report, which is looking at um, the equity at any particular month. And the reason we do that is that psychologically, when we look at the realized balance, it's got a much more linear profile uh, than all of the volatility you see as a trend follower when you're looking at it from a mark-to-market perspective um, on a month-by-month basis because you're taking into account... Uh, all of that unrealized equity that we don't worry about because that's a bet to us. That's our profits running. Uh, that's what we're prepared to make the punt on with that small bet. But we do worry about our realised balance. So I just thought that was, uh, when it comes to scale, scale is very important when you're in trend following land. What do you think, Niels?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, another um, great topic, and uh, I really appreciate you um, talking um, through that. Of course, you open a little bit of a, <laughs> a, a door um, because I, I, and I can't help saying this, but I always hear. This thing about oh, but we don't worry about the open uh, profits, <laughs> but then we do hear when there is a big give back, We do hear a little bit of a worry in tone of hear voice, a exactly. Yeah. So uh, and and then you talk about well, we don't really want these smooth returns from uh, dynamic position sizing, <laughs> but then you say, but then you say by well, only looking at realized, yeah. uh, uh, you know, my life reali- or my my actual. Uh, uh, Profits or whatever we we call it um, closed and profit, um, it smoothes out the returns. We don't need to see all the volatility of the open. So no, no. yeah, I love these small these cracks the in trade. the armor. The tricks of yeah, the trade exactly. to to stop the brain saying different things. That that's all. But that that but but hey, this is an an important part, and I think maybe to round. And I do agree. Let's keep the fourth topic uh, as a mystery for next uh, time we speak. Um, but to to round things off, everything you talked about today, I think what it stresses, you know, the difficulty of being patient enough to go for the 10 percent of trades, for example, even if you even if you were sort of dynamically uh, position sizing, it's still the 10 percent that really drives performance, I think at the end of the day. so so that's perfectly fine. Um, and and all the other things that that you uh, referred to, I think this is why. 99.9% of people can only be successful in trend following by using systems, by having rules that are computerized, because you simply cannot do this mentally. The yes. um, brain will fail you on, on
1: every every step The, the way. brain
0: will fail you, or the emotions will fail you, let's put it that way. Um, and so this is exactly why the pioneers of trend following um ended up where they where where we are today uh, by realizing all these decades ago that actually yeah if you apply rules to markets you'll probably be better off than trying to basically guess where the markets are going but in doing so let's um let's program some of these early computers or as in the case of Don where they would go to the library back in the 70s um um, Bill and his son, and and they would go and use these hole punching machines to calculate <laughs> the uh, the signals. Um, shows the dedication, but it also shows that they really very early on realized the importance of of not having to do this uh, themselves, um, if if I can call it that. So anyway, this was a wonderful. Conversation. I really appreciate all the preparations that you put into uh, to these conversation, Rich. So, uh, and I'm sure all our listeners do as well. Um, so, the great news is that there'll be more of this in a few weeks, and uh, we'll we'll tackle any topics. Well, not any topic, but uh, we'll tackle tackle hopefully some good topics that will come in um, for that, and um, and and then maybe we'll touch on the one we didn't uh, have time for today. Now, if you do appreciate these conversations, um, then why not head over to Spotify and, uh, and to iTunes and leave a rating and review, um, because they really do help more people find the podcast, so, uh, so we can convert more people to the idea of trend following. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, and, um, and by the way, for the questions, feel free to email them to info at toptradersonplug.com. Next week, Mark, um, that Rich was referring to earlier today, he's back um, and he's had some wonderful articles out uh, recently. um, So I'm sure there's going to be a great lineup of topics, but we can sprinkle that with a few uh, questions. Um, So send them in, uh, the sooner the better, that I have a little bit more time to uh, prepare for them. That's it from Rich and me. Thanks ever so much for uh, listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at and we'll try to get it on the show.